Hello and welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Vision. This is Greg Nielsen, President and CEO of Nielsen Training and Consulting, where we work with nonprofit leaders and organizations nationally in areas such as board governance, strategy, and organizational development. Um, today's topic is going to be the power of narrative and developing a narrative that serves your organization for a variety of purposes, a variety of audiences, how to develop that narrative and how to share it with all of the various stakeholders that you have. We are really lucky this morning to have a guest who is a friend of mine. Her name is Scarlett Hawkins, and Scarlett is the director of Audacity Impact. Um, Scarlett is originally from Australia, so she is our first international guest on the podcast um, and now is based primarily in the Netherlands but works um, internationally all across the world. Scarlett, welcome to the, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, let me just share a little bit about your background. I know that you have worked as a senior consultant in international development. You have focused on a, a variety of issues, including gender equality, mental health, uh, sexual, reproductive, maternal, newborn, adolescent health, um, and you're also a writer. So, Scarlett, we are we are really lucky to have you this morning. <laughs> Pleasure's all mine. <laughs> Scarlett, tell us a little bit about um, how you how you came to get into consulting, um, and a little bit about your company right now. Yes. Yeah, so. Um Audacity Impact Consulting is an organization that I began after sort of identifying the fact that a lot of NGOs and a lot of private sector organizations are not aligning their, their operations and their output and their communications. And so what you're finding is that there is a lot of really fantastic work that's taking place in the international development sector or the NGO space but people are not well resourced and there's a lot more sort of limitations based on funding, based on deliverables um, and the, the requirements they need to make come to, come to reality. And in the private sector, you find that there is a lot of resource and a lot of time for innovation and for trying things and failing occasionally, but usually moving things along. And so by bringing together some of the best practices of both, uh, I believe that organizations can really re-evaluate the way that they're doing their communications, their branding, and to create really meaningful corporate social responsibility uh, initiatives as well. So that's where I am at the moment. Uh, I entered the sector in 2015. I had the uh, opportunity to work within a really fantastic consultancy based out of London where I learned the ropes. And through there, I was able to enter into the NGO sector, but as a consultant, uh, and it's been fantastic. I'm, I've met some really incredible people and I've had the opportunity to learn a lot, but I found that my natural passion for writing and my sort of understanding of what engages people, what persuades people and what motivates people to convert from being uh, maybe a semi-interested or ambivalent party to being an active participant, um, that there was, there was a space there to be filled. And so by being able to bring a little bit of creativity and play into uh, a very policy-driven sector, I think we've been able to do more creative things with the way that we look at our problem-solving, which is really exciting. Well, Scarlett, I, I, I appreciate that answer. And one of the things that jumped out at me the first time we talked was how um, it really does transcend uh, international borders as well. So everything that you described about the climate and the landscape for international NGOs um, is what we see here in the U.S. as well. So a, a lot of the nonprofits that I work with 
um, are also struggling with narrative, are also struggling with limited resources and how to get the story out about what they do in new creative ways that ultimately make an impact as well. So I, I, I'm pleased to see that that, <laughs> that challenge is, is not just confined to our organizations here in the US. Yeah, absolutely not. And I think that's one of the things as well is that right now, people are really actualizing a strong social consciousness, I think. We've really, uh, the pendulum has swung very far away from the greed is good mentality that we once had. And people really do feel that to be able to do good work, you need to add value to the world and contribute something meaningful. But that also means that there's a degree of uh, difficulty because so many people are entering this space and they're all very, very much needed, but their organizations or their outputs or their programs might be so very, very similarly aligned with someone else who's doing the same thing. And most of the time there's not collaboration between these two things. It means that there's a lot of noise. And so organizations that can stand out from the crowd are able to become, you know, whether rightly or wrongly, they become the flagship of a movement. Um, and so yeah, understanding what makes you different and your unique selling point and being able to create meaningful partnerships and have a strong narrative of who you are and who you serve and what you do uh, can really make the difference. So today I really want to focus on the power of narrative. Um, for many nonprofit leaders, we have so much information in our heads, so much that we want to share with the community about our programs, about our staff, about our impact, about the reason why we exist. How do you recommend nonprofit leaders begin forming their narrative? How do, they, how do they decide what aspects of the narrative resonate most with people? Well, I think that there's, uh, I mean, obviously we all come back to the very same solution, whatever, in the consulting world, which is always have a strategy in place. Uh, but for a lot of people, strategy, especially for something creative, uh, like communications, branding, or advocacy can be a little challenging to sort of get your head around. So I think it is important that when we reflect on the idea of narrative, we analyze the, the, the space in which we are working, the narratives that are succeeding around us, but then also being able to critically reflect on our own organizational development and see, you know, where are we fulfilling our promises that we are making to ourselves? How much of what we say we do is what we actually do and how much of that is aspirational? Because sometimes we might pitch ourselves as being an organization that does one thing, but then uh, when you actually look at where we're investing our energies and our efforts, it might not necessarily be there, but there might be an opportunity as well uh, in where we are putting that effort to re reflect and realign uh, the way that we talk about ourselves. So um, narrative, I think, is just really, really important because there's, you know, a lot of statistics and evidence. And I think over the last decade or so, we've really been putting a lot of weight under evidence uh, for the way that we position ourselves and inform our decisions. And that's fantastic. It's very, very important. But what we find is that the human brain can only really absorb maybe two or three stats in a row before it starts to sort of lose that perspective. And it's sort of, I'm I mean, it's, I'm not alone in that. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe this is just, um, yeah, this is just one of those things, you know, we, we want to be able to uh, absorb each stat as um, powerfully as the first one, but we, we just can't. And so having a strong narrative that can tie the evidence together, once you put them together, they anchor really beautifully. And you'll see that that's what really good journalists do. They'll start with a human interest angle, and then they'll use the evidence to back up the uh, contention that they're making. And that's no different in the way that we look at our organizational development either. 
Uh, it's not about data or narrative. It's about having both, and it is remarkably effective. So when you go in um, and when you're working with a nonprofit organization trying to help them develop their narrative, how do you balance the perspectives of various stakeholders? So how do you, in, in craft, helping them craft that narrative, how do you take into account the perspectives of the staff versus the uh, perspectives of the executive, the director, um, maybe volunteers, board members? How, how do you kind of mesh that, um, those different perspectives together into a coherent narrative? Well, I think it's about recognizing the limitations of the organization you're working in. If it's a big organization with, you know, a few hundred people, then obviously not every viewpoint will be respected and uh, there's not the capacity to pull that sort of qualitative information from them. But if you're a bit smaller of an organization, you can have more people involved. Um, and I think pulling really meaningful samples of people to give their input on how you feel, or how they feel rather, uh, their organization is meeting the promises that it's making is so critical. Um, I tend to like uh, the more, I guess it's a, it's a little bit more of a challenging way of doing things, but I like putting everybody in the room who has an opinion worthy of hearing uh, and getting them to really critically reflect on the promise. Um, and I think the key to developing the right narrative is to fundamentally understand who you are, which sounds a little existential, but Sometimes organizations risk making this mistake when they're doing their strategic stuff because they skim over that as, you know, as a, as a murky <laughs> morass that you don't want to get into, you know, are we fulfilling our values? Are we engaging meaningfully with the people that we're setting out to serve? Is this the way we want to do our work? Is it different enough from other organizations doing similar things? Are we being authentic or are we talking up what we wish we were at the expense of what we're actually doing now? So, I find that when you have a conversation with volunteer staff and board or stakeholders or partners, um, you'd be surprised. People obviously do have some resistance to that critical question because our jobs are very fundamental to who we are. And people's identity is very tied up in what their organization's promise is. And so uh, it's not always, you know, the same group that has the resistance the other that's more happy to be a sparring partner. Sometimes you have a board that's really gung-ho about changing things around and you have staff that are like, no, this is how, who we are and this is how we've always been. Or sometimes it's the exact other way around. Um, but yeah, it's, it's natural to want to avoid pulling on the thread in case the whole sweater comes unfurled. But <laughs> that's exactly what you're supposed to do because you want to understand that not everyone will have the same narrative, but you need to be able to extract from those conversations what the core narrative is. And that is, this is who we fundamentally are. This is what we fundamentally stand for beyond just a value statement or a mission statement, but having a really comprehensive story behind what makes your organization or what makes your activities, what they are and why. And it's not about having people rehearse the same thing to trot out the same buzzwords because that's inauthentic and creepy. And I hate when organizations do that. Um, <laughs> But once you've clarified that core narrative and you've, you've challenged things in a really critical way and you can come to a semi-conclusion of, okay, well, this is what we want to be moving forwards, that gives you your true north for everything else. That helps you position yourselves when you're reflecting on your communications or your programs or your partnerships. Um, and yeah, I think it makes, a, it makes a really invaluable contribution to be able to stand out from the crowd, to be different, have a strong narrative, but then have all the people that are working with you and for you be able to say what they believe you are and their words and tones and jargon might be different, but the core tenet is the same. 
You know, I'm really curious um, about that, about, you know, as you, as you pull on the thread of the sweater, and I, I love that metaphor, um, are there particular questions that you've found to be really effective to get at that narrative? So, for example, one of my favorites um, when I'm doing a strategy with a nonprofit is to ask them, to ask everybody in the room to think of a time when they saw the organization at its best and to tell that story. Um, are there other questions that you found that you like um, to kind of elicit some of that information? Well, yeah, I think because there's, I mean, the narrative as well is something that ties to not just what the organization is, but what it does. And I think a lot of us can reflect on a campaign that raised their awareness of the NGO sector. And so for some people, it might be that they saw a an advertisement at a bus stop when they were five years old and it helped them sort of reflect on the world in a different way. So I like to hear those stories, but especially to use them as a way to um, discuss how narratives evolve over time. Uh, so for example, growing up in Australia, um, I was at, the, at, a, at quite a young age when we became really accustomed to seeing these uh, advertising campaigns to end world hunger that focused on starving African children. And when I say that, everybody knows what I mean. It's the big eyes, the skinny limbs, the protruding stomachs from malnutrition, and they stare down the lens of the camera and they're breaking that fourth wall and they reach right into your chest and pull on those heartstrings without lifting a finger. And even, you know, for, for that era, even in a lower or middle class part of Australia, people were really engaged with that. They wanted to be able to contribute because it was the idea of this is someone that I could know, this is someone I could care about, this is someone real. Um, and you would find that people were really contributing to fundraising efforts at that time. And of course, there is a lot of interesting academic analysis today about the feminization of Africa, which is the idea of like positioning an entire continent of people with diverse stories and backgrounds as weak and dependent on charity. So it hasn't aged well, but during the era for which it was, it was really effective because it created an understanding and a narrative that these are humans and that we should care about them. Now we've reached a period in which it's not enough to just want your beneficiaries to be human. You want them to have dignity as well. And so when you reflect on the campaigns that worked for you when you were younger or when you were first becoming sensitized to this world, um, it's great to see what hooked you and it's great to discuss what inspired you. And it's, great to talk about the first campaign you were involved in and then also look back and say, you know, how would I do things differently now? And I find that that opens the door to imagination because it gives permission for people to be critical of themselves and of the world around them in a, in a productive way. And I think you're right. I think there's so much of what you're trying to do with an organization there that's tied into your ability to, to tap into their imagination in some way. And, you know, there's a variety of tools, as you mentioned, and a variety of questions and techniques. But really, when you can get an organization, um, a group of leaders to tap into their imagination, um, that can be really powerful. Absolutely. And it's not our fault that sometimes we, we struggle with that imagination side or we fail to see the value. I mean, the sector is full of people who are brilliantly, brilliant, smart, who have committed to educating themselves in policy or uh, public health or the law and so or business. And you can't begrudge them the fact that maybe they don't have that uh, awareness, but by opening up the ability for people to, to start playing with ideas and play with narrative, it does motivate people. Absolutely. And I think the um, 
So one of the the next question I'd like to I'd like to fo uh, follow up on is how to adapt a narrative. So I, I mean, I, you know, when an organization is trying to tell its story, trying to fundamentally position itself, um, there can be a variety of purposes and a variety of audiences that they're trying to appeal to. Everything from policymakers to potential donors to potential volunteers or the community at large. How do you work with an organization to take a core narrative, but be able to tweak it or adapt it slightly depending on what purpose they're uh, using it for at that particular moment or, or who they're trying to appeal to? Absolutely. And I think that's something that uh, is important to ask because a core narrative is not a one-size-fits-all application. Um, you need to have real understanding of who it is that you're trying to reach and why, because not every audience is the audience necessarily that you need to be investing resources into engaging. Um, if you are a nonprofit, for example, in the United States and your focus is at a community or state level, uh, it's not so relevant to you what's happening on the other side of the country or externally. And so you probably don't need to think about adapting your narrative to match an international organizational sort of tone. But that's great because once you know where you don't need to go, you can start thinking about, okay, well, where am I going to be able to make a meaningful, uh, where am I able to make a meaningful outcome from my efforts? And so I always encourage my, the organizations that I work with to think about, okay, so how would you massage your core narrative to talk to a potential donor? How would you massage it to recruit a volunteer? How would you massage it to be able to engage with a beneficiary if you're using the term beneficiary, which some organizations choose not to, um, to, you know, get them involved in your programs or to accept uh, whatever it is that your organization is trying to provide in a way that doesn't condescend to them as well. Um, and I think having an understanding of your market, having an understanding of the other organizations around you, the language they're using and what is emerging as, uh, you know, more modernized, more progressive uh, ways of speaking, sometimes that's really important because then at least if you have that awareness, you can decide if it works for you or not. The, um, the power of the narrative is also you know, given to whoever is, whoever is using it at that moment. And so one of the, one of the areas where I've seen the narrative fall short a little bit is um, when organizations have put a lot of time and effort and resources into developing some messaging points, developing a narrative, but then don't invest the time and quite frankly, practice in getting folks comfortable with making it personal for them or, or personalizing it and being able to practice it themselves. So how do you help organizations take the next step? So once we have the narrative, how do we work with board members, key staff members to share the narrative, but to share it in a way that, um, like you said earlier, is personal for them and is not um, creepy and rehearsed? <laughs> uh, so a, a good way to think about doing things like this is to uh, have transparent conversations about why this narrative is updated and why it's changing. Um, I mean, things are moving very, very quickly now and the power of the internet means that a poorly presented idea or an insensitively framed remark could have repercussions for your business. And you do want to do a degree of self-protection, but you also don't want to be one of those organizations that is worried about your PR profile before you're actually worried about the work you're trying to do. And so being able to 
have an interactive opportunity, not just briefing people on these are our new style guidelines or this is our new form or this is our new way of presenting our strategy. It's important to have sessions in which people can ask questions where you can sensitize them to these ideas slowly and give them the opportunity to humanize and personalize this narrative for themselves. So for an organization where you're maybe quite far removed from the decision-making level, uh, but you are still involved, say uh, a frontline fundraiser, um, you might not understand why it's important to say one term and not another. And being able to have the conversation of, okay, well, imagine yourself as a beneficiary or as a funder or whatever. If you heard this, how would it make you feel? Um, and frankly, the core, the core of a good narrative is being able to empathize and to be able to imagine yourself in different positions, which, I mean, maybe I'm doing myself a disservice here, but it really is just that simple. Um, and it's about understanding why this narrative adds value and doesn't detract um, and then finding a way to make people more comfortable with it. I think you're absolutely right, though, that it does take practice um, and it, you know, it does take play and experimentation and asking some of those critical questions of putting yourself in a different role. Um, one of the things that I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, one of the um, ways that one of my nonprofit clients has chosen to do this is at the beginning of every board meeting, they um, ask one board member to share their version of the narrative um, in sort of a role play scenario um, where another board member may be a funder or maybe a community partner or a legislator and they just and and it's a safe space for that board member to practice sharing the narrative and also to get some honest feedback that's absolutely fantastic I'm glad to see that's happening in the nonprofit sector because that is so um that's a foundational practice that you see in big tech companies like Silicon Valley. Like people will dedicate time to have these pitch sessions where people are just refining the way they communicate about what they do. Um, and I think we've all been in that situation where someone asks what we do for a living and we get a little tongue tied. Uh, <laughs> even after all these years, you know, I still, I still have trouble trying to explain what exactly a consultant is. And I think a lot of us <laughs> do sort of have that when we found our little niche, it's like, okay, well, this is the kind of consultant I am. And they go, well, what's a consultant? You're like, Oh God, I don't know. <laughs> um, so yeah, having those pitch sessions in a safe space like that is just the perfect way to do it because it is a trial and error process. You need to get comfortable with communicating what you do in a way that makes sense for you, but is also aligned with your organization. So that's a really strategic way of doing things. And the feedback I've gotten from that organization is obviously the first couple of times you do it, it feels a little silly. It feels a little goofy. Um, but over time, it becomes part of the culture of the organization and just an accepted part of this is how we start a board meeting. This is um, you know, providing that type of positive, constructive feedback is just who we are and what we do as a board or as an organization. And it doesn't just have to be the boardroom. It could be staff meetings as well. Absolutely. And I think uh, I'm beginning a lot of things by saying I think, but I, you've got me thinking very, very hard and fast. Um, <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> yes, but um, something that uh, a lot of us feel at some stage or another during our careers is that at times, sometimes we find ourselves walking into our workplace and we put on our work face. You know what I mean? Yes. Where you're like, okay, well, today I am Greg and I'm coming into the workplace and I'm wearing my Greg as manager face. And then <laughs> you're playing the role of you at work. Uh, and sometimes that's misaligned with what you're doing at home, but being able to have these 
spaces where it is okay to make mistakes uh, and to fumble and to experiment and to play with the way you communicate, that in itself is not just good for your narrative and your brand, but it's actually very, very healthy for your organization because everybody is able to come in going, okay, I don't have to be bulletproof. I'm expected to make mistakes and I have a team who will support and catch me and help me evolve in doing so. I think you're absolutely right there. And the word that keeps coming up, uh, I've heard you use it several times, is play. And and I think that that's so important when we're talking about narrative and we're talking about crafting your story because sometimes we can make it more formal than it has to be. We can make it um, more, quote unquote, work than it has to be. Sometimes it is, like we said, about activating play and about activating imagination. Absolutely. And you see this a lot in the international development sector in particular because a lot of the language that organizations in that space use is strongly tethered to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And it's a very policy-oriented framework, and it is really interesting, but it has a lot of language that has now become the way of saying things. And so you find that you come across these hefty acronyms that just sit in your mouth like marbles and you can barely (laughs) swallow them down as you're saying them because suddenly something as straightforward as sexual and sexual reproductive health or sexual rights or something concise and human that you can kind of understand covers is the umbrella that covers you know abortion or child uh, ending child marriage or Uh, female bodily autonomy or female genital mutilation suddenly becomes SRHR, which is sexual and reproductive health and rights. And every and that you put in there kind of detracts a little bit from understanding it. And I think this is probably the writer in me. I find that so maddening because I understand. But then when you have an acronym that is six letters long and it covers everything, sometimes you risk ruining the flow of what you're trying to communicate. You become further away from the essential humanness of what you're doing. Um, So it's important to not be prescribed. Right. And you may inadvertently lose people who, who just don't have that level of experience to know what all of the acronyms stand for um, and, and kind of tune you out or, or turn off the narrative um, when they feel like they've somehow been excluded by not, not fully understanding all the acronyms. Absolutely. And this is a big uh, sort of effort that I've been putting in through my advocacy over the years. And a lot of the organizations that I work with are increasingly recognizing this is that, uh, for example, in the uh, international development space now, and I think we're seeing this also quite a lot across North America, is that they're recognizing that youth engagement needs to be meaningful. And that means having young people be actively involved in taking up space and decision-making spaces because they're about to inherit this earth. And when they do, they don't want to figure it out once the reins have been handed over. They need to be ready to go when that, when that moment begins. And so um, a big part of the work that uh, I've been doing over the last few years is trying to make spaces more accessible for young people, especially ones who want to be responsible in creating solutions that affect their communities. We can talk about what is happening at a political or policy level in Kenya, but if our organization at the international level doesn't have representatives of young people from Kenya, it's speaking on their behalf without giving them the opportunity to influence the activities that they recognize as being necessary for their community. And so being too prescriptive then suddenly creates this, uh, this barrier to entry that you need to be reasonably educated, have competency in the language, 
and be able to step in and fight for your space alongside peers who've been doing this for longer than you um, and not being given the opportunity to make mistakes and learn and grow as we do in the beginning of our careers. So it is important that we make sure that when we're doing these engagements that they are not so high up and highfalutin that we're missing out on opportunities to bring people in who could really benefit us and benefit themselves through us. Well, Scarlett, you mentioned at the beginning, we talked a little bit about um, your background working internationally. Are there cultural or linguistic or other um, sensitivities that impact the narrative when you're working with international organizations versus organizations in the U.S. or vice versa? I think that wherever you work, there are going to be little variations that you need to make. So, uh, for example, in countries like the U.S., there's a greater sort of literacy around social justice narratives that are interweaved in the NGO activities that we do. Uh, things are, uh, by and large, a little more progressive than you might see in other parts of the world. But the trade-off for that is that when you are working in different communities and things, you have other hurdles, I suppose, that you need to navigate to make sure that you are sensitized to the space in which you're working. And what you find a lot with international partnerships in particular is that uh, you might have to adapt the way you work and the standards that you may hold to fit the context in which you're working. So sometimes we might find ourselves working in a context that is not aligned with our own values, but we have to recognize that the needle of progress moves slowly. And that does sometimes mean accepting a degree of compromise to make the best possible contribution, whilst of course, keeping in line where the line is for us um, and where we do not want to go. So for example, a lot of organizations that I work with work in countries to, as I said before, as an example, end female genital mutilation, for example. But sometimes that means partnering at a traditional community level in which other traditional practices might need to go unchallenged because of the way that you do things. Or it might mean that you're working with a state-sponsored program, but that means working with a government that has charges against it of corruption. And so you need to walk a very delicate balance, and especially in international development because the reality is that a lot of these middle and low income settings, low resource settings rather, um, have been affected in some way or other by colonialism. And so the last thing you want to do is be what they call a northern based NGO coming in and dictating the terms of how things need to be. Uh, so you obviously don't want to exploit the partner country, but you don't want to look the other way in the face of atrocities either. And so that's where having your consistent narrative as we talked about before, is important because you need to know which things are worth standing for and which things are not going to be possible to work within from the outset rather than making a commitment and then getting in too deep and realizing it's not the right partnership. Scarlett, I want to thank you very much for your time today. I know I've learned a lot. I know our listeners have as well. Once again, this has been Scarlett Hawkins, who's the director of Audacity Impact. Um, Scarlett, for those who may want to learn a little bit more about um, your company, your services, may want to get in touch with you directly, how can people reach out to you? So they can reach me via the Audacity Impact Consulting website, which is www.audacityimpact.com. They can also reach out to me on LinkedIn, uh, Scarlett Hawkins, the last name's spelled H-E-W-K-I-N-S. Uh, and yeah, 
looking forward to talking with anybody who'd like to continue the conversation. Scarlett, I really appreciate your time today. This has been a fantastic conversation. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. And once again, this has been another episode of Nonprofit Vision. Um, again, my name is Greg Nielsen, uh, CEO of Nielsen Training and Consulting. And we look forward to seeing you soon. We have some exciting uh, guests coming up on future podcasts. Thank you very much.